0: Thank you for listening to this message from South Ridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today, and that you find new ways to apply his word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started.
1: As we move into this morning's time of teaching, I'd like to echo the welcome to you online viewers, I'd like to echo the welcome to all of you who are here worshiping in person. Um, As I think about Ellie's comment, you know, and me saying your vulnerability is welcome here, I can actually think of a time a number of years ago when I was in a small group setting and I did not feel like my vulnerability was welcome. Um, At the time, uh, my wife was pregnant with one of our daughters and we had gotten the news that there was possible complications in the pregnancy. So the the leader of this this small group setting was not a Southridge setting. Um, the leader of this small group setting said, is there anything that, you know, as we open to today's meeting that I can pray for for anyone here? And I, so I actually said, well, we just got this news and I'm, I'm really concerned. You know, I'm really concerned for, for our daughter, you know, that's uh, going to be born in a number of months, that it'll be a healthy birth. And these brothers and sisters in Christ in the meeting almost just immediately chimed in. And like basically kind of started preaching. And they were like, they said, you got to speak life. That's what they said. You got to speak life. And I remember just saying, and I didn't know what to say. And I remember saying, I don't don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't know what you mean. And so they they kind of explained themselves. And it turns out what they were saying is, you've got to declare in faith that, that this baby is going to be born healthy. And you got to believe it. And God will do it. And there were two reasons why it bothered me. One is I felt like my vulnerability wasn't welcome. One, you know, honestly, one is I felt like, look, I'm sharing my struggle here. Can we pray about that? Can we pray about that and, like, like not preach at each other? But secondly, if I'm honest about it, what they said I feel like is out of sync with Scripture. I feel like what they said is just not faithful to Scripture Maybe there's like a little thread in it that's faithful to Scripture, but it's out of sync with Scripture. And I thought to myself, um, well, what if our baby wasn't born healthy? You know, would God not be good? Would it mean that he didn't listen? Would it be that we didn't have enough faith? We're in a series called Cliché Christianity, and the essence of what those brothers and sisters in Christ said to me in that small group was the cliché that we're going to look at this morning. The cliché is, just have faith, it'll all work out. Just have faith, it'll all work out. Uh, That's what my brothers and sisters in Christ in that group were essentially saying to me. Just have faith that your daughter will be born healthy, and if you believe it hard enough, God will do it but is this really true? Is that how genuine biblical faith works? If I have enough faith, does it guarantee my preferred and predetermined outcome? As with all cliches, there's a thread of truth in the cliche. Nathan actually started this series by saying, as we look at each of these cliches, there's a thread of truth in each of these cliches. So I I do wanna take a moment and say, there's a thread of truth in the cliche, just have faith, it'll all work out. Scripture's clear that it's our, it's our faith in God or our trust in him that is the conduit by which he blesses our socks off. It's, it's almost faith or trust in God is almost like the, um, like the bottle opener that uncorks the bottle of God's power and grace in our life. And so there's all kinds of teaching in scripture about how our trust in God or our faith in him um, is the conduit through which his transforming power and grace flow to our lives. Let me give you just a few examples. So it's through faith, scripture says, that we're justified. Um, There's a famous verse in Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, So it's actually our faith or our trust in God that accesses and applies his grace to our lives, that makes our relationship right with God when it's broken. It's through faith that we're in the process of being sanctified. Um, Those of us who have been justified or made right with God, forgiven, are in the process of being made like Jesus, which is what sanctification means. So it's it's through faith, it's through our trust in God, our daily trust in God, that we're daily being made like Jesus. And all throughout the Gospels, there's all kinds of statements about how it's actually people's faith that... um, catalyzed Jesus' response to heal them. Um, one of those is in Matthew nine twenty two. Remember the story of the woman who was suffering from internal bleeding and she touched the cloak of Jesus. And he actually said this to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. So Jesus made it clear all throughout the gospels, it was actually people's faith that he was responding to by doing a healing work. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that God responds to our faith expressed by asking God for the things that we want and the things that we need. He responds to our faith with good gifts, with good gifts. Um, Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11, Jesus says this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, it's precisely on this point that I think just have faith, it'll all work out, veers away from Scripture. And and here's how that works. Time and time again, Scripture does call us to honestly ask, honestly verbalize our fears, our needs, our desires to God. Time and time again, Scripture... uh, Challenge us, challenges us to, add, to pray big, bold prayers, believing that God is powerful, he's involved, he's generous, and he's going to respond with a generous heart. But time and time again, Scripture reminds us that we don't know what's best for us. Scripture reminds us that God knows what's best for us. Time and time again, Scripture reminds us that God does actively and faithfully respond to prayers of faith with good gifts. But the good gifts are not always what we expect, and we, we don't always know when to expect them. In Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says this, he says to those in Philippi, ask big, pray big, bold prayers. Uh, Don't hold back from sharing your real heart with God. Tell God what you want. Tell God what you feel that you need. Verbalize your fear, your struggle to God. And he says, in response, God will give a good gift. As you heard that verse read, what good gift did you pick out that he says right up front? God will give you this in response to you asking. What good gift does he mention in the prayer? He mentions peace, peace. He says, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Now to that you may say, that's it, like he'll give peace? Like, won't he change my circumstances? Won't he deliver me from the struggle? The answer is yes, yes, he will. God's appointed a time to set all things right. In the last few chapters of scripture, we read about a new heavens and a new earth when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. To that, you might say, yeah, but that's it. Like, I kind of have to wait down the road. Like, will he deliver me from that struggle or change my circumstances right now? My answer to that is maybe, maybe. But Paul says this, not before he births in you and in me. A dependence on him that produces peace. So you and I, the good gift that you and I are receiving immediately is we're learning to actually find our peace and rest in God himself and not in ideal circumstances and not in our preferred outcome. Like we are learning that we can find our peace and our rest when there's not a struggle-free situation that may never come. That's the good gift because God is immediately blessing us, not with what we want, but with what we need because he's that good of a God. God, God's good gifts are not always what we expect and they don't always come when we expect them. We could see this with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. On the night that Jesus was arrested, one of the most moving scenes in the Bible, Jesus actually pleaded with the father. In just moments, the the, um, officers would come and arrest him And try him, mock him, bring him to the worst torture imaginable. In Mark 14, we read this. This is what Mark tells us about that night. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Just moments later after praying, not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup away from me. May I not have to suffer. God, will you take this suffering away? And just moments later, he's arrested, he's tried he's mocked, he's abused. Now, is there any human being that's ever lived that is more faithful than Jesus? Is there any human being that's ever lived that has more faith than Jesus, who's God incarnate? And yet, when Jesus said to his father, father, take this suffering away, the father's response was, not yet, not yet. There's more purposeful, and redeeming work to be accomplished. And so I'm going to allow this situation that's not your preferred outcome. But Jesus' answer, the Father's answer wasn't no, it was not yet, it was not yet. Because in time, we read in Philippians 2 that God exalted Jesus to the highest place above every authority that has ever been or ever would be. Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. Uh, Paul writes this, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in time, the good gift was not the immediate relieving of the suffering of Jesus' circumstances, but that God would exalt Jesus to the highest place in his time when the purposeful and redemptive work was accomplished. So while the cliche, just have faith, it'll all work out, has a thread of truth in it, it doesn't acknowledge genuine biblical faith. It misses the heart of genuine biblical faith. Genuine biblical faith is not self-actualization or self-direction. Genuine biblical faith is not a transaction or a formula. Genuine biblical faith is not control or manipulation of God. Genuine biblical faith, however, is three things that we're going to look at briefly this morning. Genuine biblical faith is three things that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, genuine biblical faith is dependence. Dependence. Genuine biblical faith is dependence. In Hebrews chapter 11, um, sometimes called the hall of faith, when the writer is just laying out all these examples of faith that have come before, he talks about Abraham, and he says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. So there's some mystery in faith. There's some mystery in faith. It depends on God. And his good purpose is to take us where God is going rather than to declare to God, this is where we're going. Just have faith, it'll all work out. Assumes assumes that human beings know exactly how a situation should work out. It assumes that how we think that a situation should work out is exactly how God should work it out. Uh, Recently, I was on a college campus, actually a Christian college campus, and I was in a cafe, and I looked at this artwork on the wall, and it had like a list of exhortations on the wall, and I'll just give you the top three. The first one was like, direct your destiny. Now, I'll tell you this, you could have just like taken this, and they could have been like the cliches that the series was based on. I saw it, and I was like, like, that's cliche Christianity, that's what we're talking about. It was like, direct your destiny. The next one down was like, believe in yourself. Do you know what the one right under that was? Have faith. And I thought like, that's the problem. Like that's the popular mindset. The, that these, these statements are essentially synonyms. Like they, they, all, they all sort of like are exhortations that are meant to mean a similar thing. And so I just think that it's so easy without sort of intentionally thinking otherwise to buy into the mindset of popular culture that says essentially have faith means direct your destiny, depend on yourself. But who except for the infinite wise and sovereign God can truly direct a human being's path? Who but God himself can determine from all paths and all outcomes and all seasons what the best paths, the best outcomes, and the best seasons are? In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet pens these words, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Who can instruct or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You see, it's rhetorically the answer is no one. Like who can fathom the mind of God and how he directs a human life? No one. Paul says something similar in Romans 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. It's only God who can say, these are the best paths. These are the best outcomes. These are the best seasons. And you and I have actually bought into the lie that it's our job to direct our destiny. For Father's Day, my uh, family gave me a rafting trip, like a one-day rafting trip. And so in July, uh, three of my daughters and I went on this rafting trip. And um, I took the rear position in the raft. And I was saying to my daughters, I was saying, it seems a little counterintuitive, but the rear position is the steering position. So, like, I'm actually kind of, like, like, orienting the boat in the direction that it's going to go. And, and, and it's not like you guys are doing nothing. But, like, at, my daughters were support roles. They were kind of, like, saying, like, okay, all right, dad's kind of paddling in that direction. And then the paddling in the front, it, it supports kind of the direction overall that the, that the boat's going in. The cliche, just have faith, it'll all work out. It assumes that you and I are in the steering position of the raft. Uh, scripture says it's God. It's God who's in the steering position. Um, Popular culture assumes that it's our job to decide what God's good gifts should be and when he should give them, but he is the infinite creator of the universe. We're merely finite creations. How could we possibly know better than God himself the best outcomes, the best paths, and the best seasons? When I was thinking about this, I was thinking this is one small way in my life when I saw that play out. About six months ago, I had some neck pain, like horrible neck pain. So uh, I was like, literally, if I would like stand up or like get out of bed, I would just like be like, ah. And my, and my wife was like, what's going on? I'm like, my neck's killing me. Like something's like, maybe there's like a pinched nerve or like something going on. At one point, uh, my wife, because she's really good like this, she prayed for healing for my neck. And a couple days later, still had the horrible neck pain. So I, I scheduled an appointment, went to the chiropractor. And I'm sitting there at the chiropractor, and he struck up a conversation about you know, like spiritual things. And so I'm kind of talking to him and getting the opportunity to plant some seeds spiritually. I didn't think too much of it, just like the conversation went naturally there. And I'm, I'm walking out of the chiropractor, and I get in the car, and it just dawns on me at that moment. I'm like, oh. Like if God had immediately answered my wife's prayer for healing, then like i wouldn't have really had the opportunity to plant those spiritual seeds in that person's life and i actually said to myself would god would god actually allow me to have like 3 days more of neck pain so that spiritual seeds could be planted in that guy's life and i thought absolutely he would and and, see, and seemingly he did and so genuine biblical faith is dependence genuine biblical faith is dependence, uh, time and dependence on God revealed that he was taking the situation with the chiropractor somewhere different that I couldn't see where it was going yet. I never would have known to pray for that ahead of time. He was taking it somewhere different, but it was purposeful and it was redemptive, but it, it, it did allow momentary suffering. Secondly, genuine biblical faith is real relationship. Genuine biblical faith is real relationship. Sometimes as I'm interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ who I love, uh, I hear statements like this. I'm believing God that this house is gonna be ours or I'm believing God that I'll get that job or I'm believing God that my spouse will make the right decision. Genuine biblical faith is not a predetermined outcome. It's not a transaction. It's not a formula. It's trust in a person. It's a living, breathing relationship with God. Because we live in a consumeristic culture, it's really easy for us to sort of apply a consumeristic grid to a living, breathing, messy relationship with God. In this book, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer, Sky Jitani says this, God is not a divine vending machine in the sky that merely requires exact change to dispense our desires, and prayer is not how we control God or win his favor. This is what differentiates Christian prayer from so many other religious rituals. Many religious practices approach God superstitiously. They assume God can be controlled if the right technique is employed or the right words uttered. They see him as a machine to be operated or a natural force to be harnessed. And therefore, him as a, they therefore treat him as a divine object. But we who belong to the living God approach him like a divine person. Now, in contrast to that kind of like God is a vending machine approach, most often the metaphors that describe who God is and who we are in relation to him in Scripture are relational. They're relational metaphors. Let me give you two that are all throughout Scripture. Uh, First, Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, his people, are his bride. Now, think about this. Let's just say those of you who are married here, let's just say like you went to your spouse and you said, honey, I trust you, but only, like, if this one specific predetermined thing comes to pass, only if you do that, otherwise I won't trust you. That actually reveals that there's not trust in the relationship. That's not real trust at all. There's a word for that. It's called manipulation. It actually reveals there's not trust in the relationship. And so in the same way, we don't come to God, and we don't say, like, God, I'm taking the coin of faith, and I'm putting it in the slot of the cosmic vending machine, and I'm saying to you, um, do this thing for me if you really love me. Do this thing for me, and I'll trust you. Because, like, what we've just done is we've just violated what actual trust is, which is what faith is. Because real faith is relationship. Scripture also talks over and over about God as father. God's a father and we are his children. Um, When our girls went on that rafting adventure with me, they didn't trust me that I wouldn't just like steer them into a ditch or like steer them over a waterfall because they slipped me a 20 earlier. So so I would say like, like, all right, well, because they did that, like I'll have their best interest in mind, right? Like they trusted me to not steer them like to their doom because I love them. And they know that I love them. Like they know that I have their best interest in mind. They they know that I might not always choose the easiest path, the easiest route for the wrath, but they know that I love them enough not to steer them to their doom because I'm their father because it's a relationship, not a transaction. Genuine biblical faith is dependence. Genuine biblical faith is relationship. And then lastly, genuine biblical faith is surrender. Genuine biblical faith is surrender. As we shift our trust to sort of define our own destiny and to direct our own destiny, and, and, and we, we lean into God's will, we lean into God's steering activity to guide our lives, there's gonna be rocky points There's going to be points where you say, God, where are you taking this? Why are you doing this? Why are you taking me this very difficult route? We can trust that God's direction for us will be full of life and growth. We can trust that God's direction for us will be full of meaning and purpose. But God never promises that it's going to be smooth sailing and all easy. He never promises at every point along the way that we'll see immediately the life and growth and meaning and purpose and redemption that he's got planned. In John 21, right after the resurrection, um, Jesus has this little moment where he appears to his disciples and they're fishing and they, they see him on the shore and Peter says, it's the Lord. And they all kind of bring the boat into the shore and Jesus cooks breakfast and just sits around a fire and chats with him. And they have a little breakfast, they have a little breakfast um, chat together. And as part of that, Jesus actually says three times to Peter, he says, do you love me? And he says this, this super restorative and commissioning words to him. Let me read this to you. John 21 verses 15 to 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So, little background, three times he affirms to him, this is my mission for you. It's going to be to lead and to shepherd my community when I'm gone, when I ascend back to heaven. You are going to be a key leader and shepherder of the community that multiplies, that I leave behind. And he does that, he commissions him three times to do that, because right before Jesus' crucifixion, three times Peter had denied Jesus. And so he replaces those three and restores Peter to his mission by commissioning him to shepherd and to lead the community after Jesus is gone. In the years following, scripture testifies that incredible, purposeful, redemptive things happened through Peter's ministry. Peter saw mighty acts of God that confirmed the identity of Jesus and the truth of his message. Peter preached before thousands of people and he saw thousands turn to faith in Jesus. In his lifetime, Peter saw the church multiply from a tiny little fledgling community to a movement that spread across the ancient world. But Scripture also testifies that that was not an easy mission. That was a very difficult mission for Peter. Repeatedly, Peter would be beaten and thrown in prison. Repeatedly, Peter would face opposition from both religious and government authorities. And then, a little later in John 21, Jesus says, and here's how that path is going to end. He says, Peter, here's how that path is gonna end. It's gonna be fruitful, it's gonna be purposeful, it's gonna be meaningful, but here's how it's gonna end. John 21, verses 18 to 22. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John. He turned to John and he said, "Um, Lord, who is going to betray? Uh, So so, um, this was the disciple, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So in other words, it was John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. So he said, Peter, I'm going to take your life and do something amazing, do something fruitful, something purposeful, something meaningful, something redemptive, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be harder than you imagined. I'm going to take you to places of life and growth, but along the way, I'm going to take you to some places that you don't want to go. And in the mystery of my will, one of those places is going to be martyrdom. Um, so we find out there's no scripture that tells us this, but there are some historical accounts that indicate that the, the kind of death that Peter died, which Jesus was talking about, was Peter was crucified. He was crucified under the reign of Nero when it became illegal to be, uh, it just became flatly illegal to be a believer. Um, Peter was actually imprisoned and that he was crucified. And tradition says that he said, um, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. Genuine biblical faith is surrender. Surrender to God's leading very well might mean that he takes us to places that we don't want to go. Places that are unexpected, places that are uncomfortable, and places that may even be painful. And so why would we want to do that? Why would we want to surrender? Why would we want to sort of say, God, take the steering position in the back of the raft of my life circumstances. God, I, I'm going I'm to row in response to the direction, the good purposeful, redemptive direction that you're setting in my life? If that's going to be a painful trip, why would we want to take that? And I want to leave you this morning with two reasons. Here's two reasons why we want to take that journey with Jesus. The first is it's not the easiest path, but it's the best path. It's not the easiest path, but it's the best path. It often seems like when the raft is most out of control and it's in the most troubled waters, that... It's just ahead around the bend, but we can't see it yet. We see the grass and the life and the flowers growing. It's just around the bend. We see this beautiful life growing that we can't yet see when we're saying, why, God, why have you led me through these waters? Why? I read a book a while ago, many years ago, called A Grace Disguised. And I thought of it because I was talking to one of you who lost a loved one. And we were talking about this book, and I said, here was one of the most meaningful things in the book, maybe, maybe like my number one takeaway from the book, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. Um, Jerry lost his mother, his daughter, and his wife in the same car accident. Um, his, car, his minivan was broadsided by um, a drunk driver, and he, he actually lost three generations of his family. And he, he writes, he says, that was unimaginably difficult. He said, I never would choose that again. Like if you said, you're the director of your destiny, I never would have chose that. And he said, but I can't deny that beautiful things have happened because of it. I can't deny that some of the most beautiful things in my life, the most beautiful relationships, the most beautiful connections, some of those beautiful things that God has done in my heart and life that make me into the person that I am today, those would not have happened if God had not allowed that horrible thing to happen. And he says, I would tell you a million times over, I never would have picked this. This has been a hard road. And he says, but I can't deny that God is doing beautiful things by allowing this. There's mystery in surrendering to God's will and there's often pain, but there's tremendous beauty and purpose that we'll never experience if our posture towards life is direct your own destiny. Secondly, surrender is where the peace comes from. Surrender is where the peace comes from. Do you know that um, statue or picture of Atlas? It's like a Greek god. You see him sometimes like outside of a building, like in the city, and he's like a big muscular guy. he's He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's just like holding up the world, and he's sort of crouching and struggling under the weight of the world. Sometimes I see that, and I'm like, that's us. That's you and me. Because we easily buy into the lie that it's our job to direct our destiny. And because of that, like we have the weight of the world on our shoulders, like as if like we can be God. And so we have the weight of the world on our shoulders. And we're carrying something that only God, the creator, can carry. Like we don't have the ability to carry all the weight of directing our own destiny. And so the answer is surrender. Like the answer is to sort of shift our dependence from ourself to carry that. And to say like, God, that's yours to carry. There is a sovereign king of the universe and it's not you and it's not me. Over the summer, I read a book by uh, G.K. Chesterton and it's kind of a tough read. He wrote it in 1908. It's called Orthodoxy. And what I'm saying to you is so beautifully captured in uh, Chesterton's words here. He says, mystery keeps men sane. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. The ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has been a mystic. Man can understand everything by the help of what he does not understand. The morbid logician seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The mystic allows one thing to be mysterious. And everything else becomes lucid. And he goes on to define that one thing that makes everything else lucid as the God of Scripture. As we daily surrender to him, we increase our peace and our rest. As we sort of give him the weight of the world, we increase our peace and rest. As we realize it's not always our job to understand. It's certainly not our job to direct our own destiny. But there is one, whose job it is to direct our destiny, our loving father, our bridegroom, one who loves us, one who doesn't always have easy purposes for us, but one who definitely always has redemptive purposes for us, meaningful, life-giving, flourishing purposes for our life. And that's ultimately where he's taking it. I remember in college, I had the privilege of meeting a guy named Rich Mullins. Um, Some of you may have heard Rich Mullins' music. He was a Christian musician for many years. He died in a tragic car accident in 1997. Um, I remember hearing the news of Rich dying. And I remember, like, you know, we weren't friends or anything. I did get to meet him. I knew him. I read a lot of what he's written. I'd listened to his music. I remember looking out the window of my college dorm, and it was a rainy, like pouring rain on a September night. And I just remember thinking, like, Wow. So Rich Mullins is dead. And I just remember like reflecting on his legacy. And one of the songs that he's, he wrote, which was his, one of his best and one of his rawest songs, was a song called Hold Me, Jesus. Ultimately a song of surrender. Um, Rich was no stranger to depression. It came out later. He really struggled with depression and certain issues of addiction. And in, in the song, Rich said to God, He said, I wake up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hard inside my soul. I swear there must be blisters on my heart. Later in the song, he confesses that uh, he really struggles to surrender to God. He, He struggles to let God kind of steer the raft of his circumstances. He says, surrender, don't come natural to me. He says to God, I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. But ultimately, even with like kind of that raw acknowledgement of like, I kind of want to do my own thing. And it kind of leaves me in this really bankrupt place. Ultimately, the song is a song of surrender. It's saying, God, I invite you to be my source of rest and peace. I invite you to be my source of rest and peace. The chorus says, hold me, Jesus. I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been my king. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? This morning, you and I have the opportunity to close the service by reflecting on that song, by Hold Me Jesus by Rich Mullins, as Laren and and the team um, lead us in it. Just listen, reflect, uh, take in the words, and let this, as it was for Rich, let this be your song, of surrender. Let it be your invitation to God to say, you, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my anxiety, you be my source of rest and my source of peace.
0: Oh, sometimes my life just don't make sense at all. When the mountains see... Jesus, cause I'm shaking like it.
1: as we we reflect on these words, we just invite you to direct the raft of our circumstances. And God, we we make a decision this morning to stop fighting you. God, none of us celebrate when painful things happen. We're heartbroken as were you heartbroken when life was hard. God, but we honestly acknowledge that to you. Uh, we hold out our hands with our, whatever's weighing us down the most this morning that we came into the service with. And God, we just simply say, steer the raft of our circumstances. Um, turn this beauty, turn this, these ashes to beauty. God, we simply acknowledge uh, that you are God, that we're not, that you know best. And God, uh, no human being has the ability to, to direct their destiny. But God, that is something that you as the infinite creator are uniquely positioned to do. And so God, we ask you to do it this morning. And we just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was so awesome to worship together this morning, so life-giving. Um, it was a privilege. And whether it be online, those of you who are watching online or here in person, we just hope that we get to do it again soon together. All right, have a great, have a great Sunday and a great week.